the America we have now is a deaf dealing um, America to those on the margins of society. And I want nothing to do with that America. Uh, and I think if I'm going to be faithful to what I believe is the message of the gospel, I have to stand against this America and be un-American. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, everyone. This is Gary Allen Taylor, your host of Holy Heretics. And we continue our march toward the marginalized today with a conversation with Latinx scholar Dr. Miguel de la Torre. Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre is professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology just up the road in Denver, Colorado. He is a recognized international Fulbright scholar, and he advocates for an ethics of place. De La Torre has taken students on immersion classes to Cuba, Guatemala, the Peruvian Amazon, and the Mexican-U.S. border to walk the trails of migrants. His most recent books include Decolonizing Christianity, Liberation Theology, and the one we are discussing today, Resisting Apartheid America. Now, if apartheid is a new word or concept for you, it gained prominence in 1948 in South Africa under the minority white government. Apartheid, or apartness, is the language of the Afrikaans, and it was a system of legislation that upheld segregation against non-white citizens of South Africa. After the National Party gained power in South Africa in 1948, the all-white government immediately began enforcing existing policies of racial segregation. Under apartheid, non-white South Africans, who were, of course, a majority of the population, were forced to live in separate areas from whites and use separate public facilities, and contact between the two groups was limited. First, apartheid made it illegal for South African citizens to pursue interracial relations. Millions of black citizens were then forcibly removed from their homes, restricted and confined within tribal homelands according to their ethnicity, while whites remained and occupied the towns and the cities of South Africa. Blacks were not allowed to vote or engage in politics and were reduced to labor for whites. And though apartheid ended in 1994, the repercussions of so many years of oppression are still evident today. I was in Cape Town a few years ago, and the ongoing economic injustice was palpable even this many years after apartheid ended. And though there have been great strides toward freedom, on one side of town were all the rich white people, while just a block away there were shanty towns and slums and really abhorrent and inhumane conditions that are, frankly, just very difficult to describe. So the question we're talking about today is, could this system of apartheid take root in America? Could we see it here in the future? 
because there is an all-out race war being waged by Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and their Republican Party goons, and it continues to force not only uh, underrepresented populations to the margins, we're now seeing an all-out attack on other marginalized groups like our LGBTQIA plus friends and family. They are being targeted by discrimination laws throughout the Bible Belt, leading to a big question about what the future of American democracy might look like. And what does it say about white Christianity in South Africa and here in America today that they are the main voting bloc toward an apartheid state? People like Matt Walsh, who just this morning called for the execution of medical doctors who perform gender-affirming care. It does seem that there's a direct link between conservative evangelical theology and political and racial and sexual apartheid. The threat to American democracy from white evangelicals is real, which makes this a critical conversation. And so in your process of deconstructing evangelicalism, there's also a question to ask yourself, how much of my American identity needs to be deconstructed? Especially if the identity of being an American is rooted in and founded in racial and gender and sexual discrimination. What does it mean to become un-American? What does it mean to resist and even subvert this growing threat of American apartheid? I'm thankful to be joined today by Miguel De La Torre to help answer some of those questions. So, Miguel, welcome back to the show. It's an honor to have you with us once again. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You joined us back in season two for an incredible conversation about decolonizing Christianity. And here in season three, we're dedicating this platform to voices on the margins of faith and culture. And if I'm not mistaken, you've dedicated your life and work as a scholar to the margins. What does that look like for you in your research and your writing? Um, yes, I have. In, in my writings and my teachings, I'm always uh, focusing on minoritized voices and, and their perspectives. And, and what that does in my teaching and in my research is that it provides an interesting critique to dominant assumptions about what is Christianity. Um, when the faith um, of those who use that faith to support slavery, to support the genocide of indigenous people, to support neocolonialism, uh, to support imperialism. Um, when that faith is used to support these things, then there's something wrong with that faith. And to understand um, the, uh, that faith from the perspective of those who are oppressed by these things um, is to discover a critique as to why uh, the faith of the dominant culture really has little to do with the gospel message of Jesus. How has centering marginalized voices uh, impacted your theology as well as your understanding of Christianity? Because so many of us only know a Christianity of domination, of imperialism. We only know the Christianity that got in bed with the Roman Empire and since then has become imperial religion. But but you've seen a different version of Christianity, correct? I have. I mean, we have to remember that all interpretations of Christianity or, or any faith tradition uh, whatsoever um, 
is contextual. Mm. It depends on those who are viewing that particular faith tradition. And, and to view Christianity from the perspective of the wretched of the earth um, provides not only a clearer understanding as to why oppression exists, but also um, how to resist the dominant oppression that exists. So your most recent book is, speaking of resistance, Resisting American Apartheid. Why this book and why right now? Basically, this is the third book of a trilogy. The first one being Burying White Privilege, the second one, which you just mentioned, Decolonizing Christianity, and now this one. And, and in those earlier books, I was trying to understand the rise of white Christian nationalism and how it is um, so embedded between um, within white supremacy and within uh, 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 Christianity. So this third book pretty much brings the conversation to a close by looking at the current policies and the current political ethos of this country and trying to look into the future and see what's coming. And if what's going on now continues, we will probably be seeing um, a, a structures, political structures, that do more damage to marginalized communities as they try to hold on to their power while demographically shrinking um, and becoming more of the minority population. Uh, I mean, we talk about that within the next 15, 20 years, white um, Euro-Americans will be a minority in this country because all the other uh, non-white groups together will represent the majority. And that's scary for a lot of people. So how do they maintain their power even though they don't have the demographic numbers uh, to, 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 you know, to, to, to assume that they have a right to that power. Mm. Much like we saw in South Africa, correct? Exactly. And, and hence, I'm using that South African word, apartheid. Mm. You mentioned the word white Christian nationalism just a second ago. Do you mind defining that? Because I feel like depending on who you talk to, it can be something positive for the Theobros and the conservative evangelicals who are embracing this. And yet for the rest of us, um, this label has come to mean so much of what is wrong, not only in Christianity, but also in America. What is white Christian nationalism to you? Well, I think what white Christian nationalism, not just to me, but for many on the underside, of white supremacy is that this is a faith tradition that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather becomes a way of spiritualizing and justifying white supremacy. So white Christian nationalism provides the uh, justification for the genocide of indigenous people or for the slavery of African people or for the invasion of other countries 
to steal their natural resources and their cheap labor. It's done in the name of Christianizing and civilizing uh, the other. So while those within uh, the dominant culture that receive a tremendous degree of privilege from this white Christian nationalism may want to embrace it, as has done some of our more recent congressional leaders. Um, For those of us who are not part of this white Christian nationalism, um, it becomes something very scary, very Mm. death-dealing, something very satanic. Um, And and, and maybe I should just take a moment and and define what I mean by white. Um, By white, I am not talking about skin pigmentation. Uh, whiteness has nothing to do with the hue of your skin. It has to do with an ideology Mm. of white supremacy. So obviously, you do have people of color who are white Christian nationalism, just like you have people who have white skin who are against white Christian nationalism. And, you know, I'm thinking of um, Zoe and Neil Huston, who, who said, um, not all my skin folk are kinfolk. Uh, <laughs> just because a person is uh, black or brown doesn't mean that they may not also ascribe to this white Christian nationalism. Mm. That's a great point. I- I'm curious, when you do look at the future Are you scared for yourself uh, being a Latinx scholar, being someone who has inhabited the margins? Um, What does that look like for you personally, not just from a scholarly or theologically perspective? Well, if you say if myself, Miguel de la Torre, is afraid for the future, I am. Um, Like any other individual. I, I want to live a life of peace and, and, a, and a long life. Um, <laughs> but the work I have been doing has targeted me. Uh, I, I'm on a, um, uh, on a professor watch list um, for, be, you know, for, for teaching um, horrible things. And, and, and this has led to all kinds of um, death threats and, 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 and all kinds of, um, uh, of scary moments. Mm-hmm. Um, which I would rather not have to deal with in my life. But quite frankly, as, as, as problematic as that may be, it does not come close to those who are physically dying every day because of this white Christian nationalism. To be black or brown and pulled over by the police could be a death sentence right then and there. Right. Um, you know, I have a, my, my skin pigmentation is light enough that I can quote unquote pass. So I don't face the immediate threat that so many people on the margins do. Because I am a professor, I now have a certain degree of middle class privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, so that also protects me. Um, for, for, for many of my compatriots, they're living, they're barely living paycheck to paycheck. And with every new policy, that is passed that untangles the safety net, they fall into greater hardship. Hmm. So yes, while personally I may be concerned, so many others 
who are black and brown and, 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 and Asian and indigenous, uh, this is really, truly death dealing for them. Mm. Your book, Resisting American Apartheid, talks about this future of America that's dominated by white Christian nationalists. And and I'll be honest here. I thought it was over. I, I thought the white Christian nationalist movement would die when Trump was defeated um, in the in the last election. And yet we're seeing a, a, a resurgence of it in particular in the policies and the ideology of Ron DeSantis in Florida. And I want I want to hear your response to this. I am far more concerned about and fearful of Ron DeSantis than I am Donald Trump. And here's why. I thought that Donald Trump obviously was a racist. He was a petty uh, demagogue. He was an authoritarian, and yet he was also, in many ways, a fool. He was just a, a he. It was and is a pathological narcissist, a liar, and I didn't necessarily see him put an ideology or worldview into practice. Um, he was just cruel for cruelty's sake. DeSantis, on the other hand, feels like he has a plan. He has, as Hitler described, his Weltanschauung. He has a worldview that he is trying to implement from a policy perspective. Am I fear-mongering here? Am I way off base? Because DeSantis scares me a hell of a lot more than Donald Trump. No, not not at all. Quite quite, quite the contrary. Um, I would agree with you. Um, Trump would sabotage himself when he mm. was president. Mm. Um, if he wasn't such a um, novice, um, if, he, if he really if he knew what he was doing, he could have been devastating uh, mm. to the minoritized people of this country. Uh, fortunately. Um, he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, he's just, he's an idiot. I mean, I don't <laughs> want to be cruel, but he really is just a fool. Yes. Um, DeSantis, on the other hand, is very intelligent. Mm. Um, just the the successes he has had in Florida should be a warning sign of what could come to this country. Um, so, yes, uh, DeSantis really, really scares me. Mm. Uh, but going back to where you began that conversation, um, and, and this is the resurgent of, of, of this way of thinking, I'm not quite sure it ever went away. Um, in, in 2020, during the election, what I was expecting was a repudiation of Trumpism. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that the American public would say enough is enough. Uh, democracy means more to us than the election of this one person. But instead, Trump got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. So you did not have a repudiation. Instead, you had a tighter embrace of Trumpism. Yeah. Um, when Biden wins, you know he's going around saying, this is not who America is, but quite frankly, this is exactly who America is. This is who America has always been. So, so, so on the on the right, you have this doubling down on Trumpism, uh, this this reinforcing of it, 
And on the left, you have folks denying that Trumpism is a threat, mm-hmm. that now that Biden's election, America is back. And, you know, we've done away with that horrible four years. Um, I don't see that as the case, as DeSante is a good example of, and as the storming of the Capitol was. You would right. imagine that when people literally storm the 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 the, the, the sanctuary of democracy um, and defecate in the hallways and and beat up and kill law enforcement, um, that there will be like a moment of just, whoa, we've really gone the wrong way here. We need to turn back. But instead, people continue to drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. So in your book, you ask us to become un-American, which in in many ways sounds horrific to even, I would say, even ex-evangelicals. Growing up as a white evangelical, there was this unholy marriage between sort of Team Jesus and Team America. We really thought that being a good, a good Christian also meant you were a good American and vice versa. And even our public schools taught and continue to teach this ideology of American exceptionalism, that America is great because America is good. We're the good guys. We fight holy wars. We fight just wars. But you were calling on us not only to deconstruct white evangelicalism, but also to deconstruct our loyalty to what it means to be, quote, an American. And it sounds wonderful to me, but what do you mean by that? And, and how can you help those who aren't quite there yet? You know, they, they've, they've deconstructed Christian nationalism, yes, but wow, I'm, I'm still really loyal to my country. Uh, can, can you help us with that? Yes, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think that to be loyal to a country um, could be extremely dangerous, no matter what country it is. My country, right or wrong, Mm. um, is in a dangerous ideology because it leads to all kinds of horrors. Um, Looking at, for example, um, you know, when when we're doing this interview, uh, today, um, yesterday, Putin gave a speech in uh, Russia in where he was talking pretty much my country, Russia, right or wrong, <laughs> uh, was the gist of his speech. So patriotism could be very dangerous if we do not hold the country to the rhetoric it espouses. So my dear uh, colleague, uh, Vincent Harding, who, who passed away a few years back, would always ask, is America possible? And what he was saying in that question is that this idea of America has never existed huh. since the very foundation of, of, of the colonial process in the Western Hemisphere, uh, beginning with the uh, genocide of indigenous people in the name of Christ, in the name of of, of the New Jerusalem and uh, New Israel, uh, getting rid of the Canaanites who are in the land. From that moment, we began to create an America that was contrary to any idea of justice, any idea of 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 of, of inclusion. 
um, when we brought slaves over um, in, in the name of civilizing and Christianizing them, again, this is an America that goes contrary to the very gospel message of Christ. When we invade other nations to steal their raw material and cheap labor, um, we are denying any type of Christian understanding um, of how we should live and act. Uh, James Cone, another colleague who, who passed uh, away, would, would always argue that this white Christianity is satanic <laughs> because any Christianity that has nothing to say about slavery cannot be of God. So the America we have now is a deaf-dealing um, America to those on the margins of society. And I want nothing to do with that America. Uh, and I think if I'm going to be faithful to what I believe is the message of the gospel, I have to stand against this America and be un-American. So to be un-American means to demand that justice rolls down like living water and righteousness flows like an everlasting stream. Hmm. To be un-American means a radical solidarity with those on the margins, demanding equality in, in political and civil life. To be un-American means the embrace of, 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 of people of color, of queer people, of, of, of uh, the dismantling of patriarchy, um, the, the, the dismantling of a classist system where the vast majority of this nation wealth goes into the hands of a few people who own major multinational corporations. <laughs> That's what it means to be an American, and that is what we need to strive towards if we're going to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even if you're not a Christian, if you want to be faithful to basic humanity. We both live in Colorado. Uh, you live just up the interstate from me. And I think Denver is a little bit different than Colorado Springs. But Colorado Springs is dominated by a, a very heavy military presence. There is this sense of patriotism um, in the summertime. I can walk out on my porch and at 445 every afternoon, I can hear the national anthem being broadcasted from the Air Force Academy right down the street. And honestly, it it makes me sick. I, I don't I don't pledge allegiance to the flag. Uh, one of the ways in which my faith deconstruction has has come to be is in deconstructing my my identity as an American because I have studied and I do understand our atrocious history, uh, and yet. There, there are really ways in which we are continue to be entangled here, in particular in Colorado, where it's such a heavy military presence. Is that another way in which we need to 
become un-American uh, because questioning the military, which I think is one of the biggest cults in in the world, well, that's almost the last domino to fall for many of us. Like, you know, you know they, they are our heroes. We look at, for instance, I was watching the NFL the other day, and there is such a synergy between the NFL and the military and being able to you know, this macho toxicity of masculinity. How have you potentially moved away from the militarization of what it means to be an American? That's a good question. And, and I'm trying to think how to begin to unpack it because there's so much there. Yeah. And I, and I ask it in a really terrible way. So apologies there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. So, so let me begin by, by, by saying that the United States military budget is equivalent to the next 13 countries combined. Wow. And, and I forgot what the countries are, but they include Russia and China and Saudi Arabia and Italy and France and England. So, mm -hmm. so the next 13 countries combined do not equal the budget of the U.S. military. We have what is called air superiority. We, can, we, we dominate the skies throughout the entire world, and we can fight two wars at the same time. Why do we need that level of dominance? Mm. And it's probably because for a global population in the United States of about what, five or six percent of the world's population, we have the vast majority of the world's resources flowing to us. The reason we get to live the lifestyle we have is because we have a military that allows us to disproportionately take the world's resources for mm -hmm. our use. So I begin by I begin to to look at your your, your question by saying that the military in and of itself is problematic because it is part of maintaining our role as as the dominant empire in the world. You know, we, we read news reports about Russia and China as threats. They are not threats. Combined, they are not a military threat to the United States. Mm. Um, there, there's no one, you know, if the, if the United States falls, it's because we do it to ourselves, not because of any foreign power. Right. The second thing, those who are serving as privates, those who are the, the, the cannon fodder, um, are, are people, most people of color, they, they, resemble, they resemble more community college than an elite white school. <laughs> um, these are the people who we are asking to, to give their lives for this ideology of world empire. Um, and, then, and when they do, and when they are maimed, when they are, when, when they are injured and wounded, the, the amount of money we spend to help them and rehabilitate them is, is, is criminal. Mm -hmm. we, we, don't, we ignore them. Now, even though I'm against the military complex, I am not against the personnel who are putting their lives on the line 
believing in an ideology that is not faithful to them. Wow. And, and you know, we, we have veterans who are living in the streets in this country. We have veterans who cannot get the proper medical care because of the budget cuts. Um, the, the VA is, is, is a disaster. And, you know, we're, we're willing to wave the flag. We're not willing to pay the, the price for those who, who, who died or, or were wounded defending that flag. So there's a tremendous hypocrisy among people waving flags and singing the national anthem and yet allowing those among us, mostly people of color, mostly people who are poor, to pay with their lives for this ideology. Hmm. So as you can see, I'm somewhat conflicted. Right, I'm right. against the military industrial complex, but my heart is with those who probably did not have a choice but to join the military as a way of survival, something that I almost did. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a young teenager, I did not have money to go to college, and the military offered me that. Right. And if it wasn't for the fact that I got a job at the last minute, I probably would have joined myself. Um, you know, as a way of getting a college education. Hmm. Yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I have family that are in the military. I have friends who are in the military and, and I don't want to demonize them. Mm-hmm. I do question, as you said, the American military complex and the lies that it tells and the myth of uh, this again, American exceptionalism, and we are the good guys fighting holy wars, and and I just don't know how to have that conversation with them, because quite it, it you begin to question their very identity because it is so wrapped up in that, and you know I I think that's something that I want to continue to educate myself and learn, and also have compassion and grace toward people who have gone in that direction. Uh, maybe because they felt justified in that and or they they believe that they're doing good. And I think some of them are doing good. So, yeah, I just want to kind of wrap that. Um, I want to follow up here as we sort of move to a conclusion. In your book, you foresee an America ruled by the few at the expense of the many. And we've talked about that as it relates to apartheid. But your response to resisting that is uh, – one of nonviolence. And I'm curious to, I've got a couple of questions around that. Uh, we just uh, recorded an episode about nonviolent resistance. And it feels like as a white person that that is a response of privilege, that it's very easy for me to sit in my middle class house as a white person and choose passivity. Um, it is nonviolent resistance one? Will it work against this rise of American apartheid? And what exactly does it mean if it is not passivity? Mm-hmm. Great question, because you're absolutely right. All too often, those who advocate nonviolent are people who are privileged, and, 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 and any violence could threaten their privilege. Yep. So all of a sudden we become nonviolent when African-Americans are demanding that um, Black Lives Matter. Um, But we're not nonviolent when it comes to 
um, supporting a police force that is killing them. Mm-hmm. So, so right off the bat, I think you're absolutely right in, 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 in naming that hypocrisy when we talk about issues of violence. Uh, secondly, to your question, there has never been a society that had a change in its policies, its government policy, that stopped the oppression of people that was not violent. Even nonviolent movements are tremendously violent to those who are fighting for the liberation. Mm. So there's no such thing as a nonviolent movement. All fights for liberation um, come at the, at the cost of a spilling of a lot of blood. Okay. So when I say nonviolent, I want to be very clear as to what I'm talking about. First of all, I am reminded of the words of Cesar Chavez, who said, I am not a nonviolent man. I'm a violent man trying to be nonviolent. <laughs> and, what, and what I think he meant and what I meant is I have a tremendous capacity out of righteous anger to, to move into a violent response. I know I can. Um, I choose not to. Mm. And the reason I choose not to is really for the reasons of, 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 of strategy and for practicality. And, and, and I think uh, towards the end of uh, Martin Luther King's life, he was moving in this direction also. In, where, in one speech he was talking about, if I am violent, it would only provide those in power who have all the guns and have all the missiles and have all the police forces to unleash even greater violence as a justification against the, the violence that I committed. Mm-hmm. So there is a danger of creating more harm to marginalized communities who engage in violence. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I, at this moment, I am against the use of violence um, to bring about liberation, not because I don't think I'm capable of it and not because I think that it's somehow um, um, spiritually wrong, it's for practical reasons. I mean, when, you know, in the name of the Second Amendment, you have all these militia groups and all these white nationalists with, you know, unbelievable amount of armament, you know, so, so I'm hesitant to, to go against that uh, because I think it will be more damning to um, oppressed communities. Right. So, so that's, that's the reason why I'm trying to find a nonviolent way of bringing about change, but also fully aware that even if I say it's nonviolent, there will be violence. Yeah. Well, you see that in the the fight for civil rights. You saw it with Gandhi. Um, you've seen it throughout other movements of nonviolence that there is almost a way of provoking violence and then receiving violence and receiving injustice that exposes the wrong. And And as you said, if you react to that violence with violence, well, now the powers that be have the, quote, justification to then completely annihilate you. Um yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting dance. I mean, I 
part of my deconstruction journey was becoming nonviolent. And yet I'm also realizing that it was very easy for me to do that based on my privilege and based on my skin tone. Um, so I want to end with a question looking toward the future. When you look toward the future of American democracy, do you have hope? And if so, what is guiding or leading that sense of hope? Yeah. Um, as you may or may not know, I, I did write a book called Embracing Hopelessness. So I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have much hope towards the future. Uh, first of all, um, we never really had a democracy in this country. Um, a vast majority of the population was never allowed to vote. And even when they could legally vote, they were prevented by, uh, by voting um, uh, due to local laws and regulations. Um, only very recently did those who were usually, whose voices were usually suppressed actually came out and voted and ended up electing a black man. And the response to that <laughs> was Donald Trump, probably um, after World War Wilson, probably the most racist president we ever had. Right. So the, 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 the white lash of, of, of people voting um, has translated into all these uh, uh, laws suppressing the votes of people of color in all these states um, uh, that, 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 um, that, that uh, so many of them battleground states, and also the re uh, ger uh, germanding of districts so as to further prevent uh, representation for minoritized communities. If we were to vote based purely on population, um, both the House, the Senate, and, and the presidency would have been Democrat for the last 30, 40 years. Exactly. But, you know, and, and that, that, that's a great thing. I have my own problems with Democrats. <laughs> exactly. But right, what I'm right. is, if we were just to vote based on population and, 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 and not on all these uh, laws of suppression, um, we would have had different uh, um, electoral outcomes. Mm. So saying all that to say, uh, do I have hope for democracy in the past? We never had one in the, in, I mean, democracy in the future, we never had one in the past. <laughs> so that makes having one for the future um, um, even more difficult, mm. especially as we continue to move in the disenfranchisement of the voices of marginalized people. So, no, I really believe that um, we already are at an apartheid situation, and it's only only going to get worse. Wow. Radical changes must occur if we're going to um, try to create a democracy for this country. Thank you so much. Thanks for your words of wisdom, for your words of warning, and for those of us who want to lean in a little bit more into this conversation of how to resist American apartheid, where can we grab your book and learn more about your scholarship and your work? 
Mm. Well, um, to learn more about my scholarship and, 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 and links to the different books I've written and articles, um, you could always check out my website as drmigueldelatore.com. Um, and um, as far as this particular book, is, uh, it's, it's available through Urban's Press as well as you could pick it up through any of the um, book selling platforms that are out there. Perfect. And I will link to all that in the show notes for those who want to pick pick up your book. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always learned so much. It's great to know you're just up the road. And I look forward to uh, having you on the show again, hopefully next season, as you continue to center marginalized voices and marginalized theology in a way to heal all of us from our addiction to power and to imperial religion. So thanks so much for being on the show once again. I look forward to being on the show again sometime in the future. And the next time you're driving through my neighborhood, stop by for a cup of coffee. Hey, I will. That sounds great. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.